Mark 14.1. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Andy. Let's pray together. Father, we long, as we sung earlier, to behold the Lord Jesus more clearly. And all the more so as in this bit of Mark's gospel, we approach the cross we long especially to see and understand all that he did there for us. We long that our response to all that he did there would be all that it should be. So 
please, though perhaps familiar things we're looking at. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see things afresh and you would stir our hearts, please. Um, for we ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Well, this passage we have is a, is a tale of two suppers or two dinner parties. And at both of them, Jesus is enjoying a meal with some of his closest friends. And we might imagine it would be an easy time, a fun, relaxed time. But actually, at both some parties, we'll see there was a rather awkward moment. It wasn't quite as easy and relaxed as we, we might have supposed. And across both dinner parties, we're going to see the shadow of Jesus' death, his impending death. Uh, adds a, a note of, of impending doom, I suppose. Chapter 14 is the beginning of, of Mark's passion narrative. The final hours of Jesus' life now is where he's got to in the story he's trying to unfold to us. Last week, we saw the backdrop that Mark puts in place against which we're to see this, these, this final thing of, of Jesus' death. And that... That last chapter spoke of the ominous events still to come, of the end of the world. And in one sense, it shows us the, the significance, the massive cosmic significance of what is about to happen. It all makes sense in the light of that, of the end that is coming. In this bit, we see something of the profound personal significance of what Jesus is about to do. We see it demands a response from each one of us. In a sense, this passage asks of us two searching questions. What is Jesus' death worth to you? And what does his death show about what you are worth to him? And I guess many of us can give sort of easy answers to both those questions. But this passage makes us reflect on our answers more deeply and think about them um, further. So let's look, look at the first of those dinner parties. It took place in a little village a few miles outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. We're not told what was on the menu that evening. We're not told what they drank. We're just told about one thing that happened, which caused quite a stir, a rather awkward, embarrassing moment when this woman poured a bottle of perfume all over Jesus' head. And at the time, people thought that was wasteful extravagance, an empty gesture that benefited no one. But Jesus says, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And Mark wants us to see the beauty of what she did. So very deliberately, he frames this little story with two dark, grim little vignettes just before it, verses 1 and 2. We're told about the chief priests and the teachers of the law looking for a way to kill Jesus. Then in verse 10 and 11, we see Judas offering to betray Jesus. Those two ugly scenes of malice and treachery are there to show up the beauty of what this woman 
did so that we see it and appreciate it properly. Just as a jeweler might lay out on the desk a black velvet cloth before placing the, the gem, the jewels, the, the, uh, the rings, whatever you might be there to buy. Put against the black backdrop so that the beauty and the brilliance of the gem is seen in all its beauty. Well, Mark wants us to see something beautiful. And so he puts it against this dark backdrop. Well, let's look then at the particular thing he wants, he's wanting us to notice, the beauty of what this woman did. Look, look back to verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. This bottle of perfume wasn't the kind of diddly bottle that someone might pop in their handbag or uh, have on their bedside table or something. John says it, it held a pint. So it's a big bottle of perfume. And when Mark says it was very expensive, of course, all perfume is extremely expensive. But this was phenomenally expensive. Worth more than a year's wages. Can you imagine it? It's not the kind of thing you can pick up in duty-free. It's probably a, a family heirloom passed down from mother to daughter. And yet the woman breaks the long, thin neck of the bottle and empties it all over Jesus. Can you imagine the smell in the room? Probably just a few drops would have filled the room with scent. She pours out a pint of the stuff. And we might have thought what the disciples thought who were there. Tempted to think, what a waste. What a waste. But Jesus says, it's beautiful. She did what she could, he says, verse 8. She, she gave what she had. Rather like the widow, remember the end of chapter 12, who Jesus singled out as she put her two small copper coins into the temple treasury. And yet Jesus says she has given more than anyone else. She put everything in, all she had to live on. Well, now in a similar kind of way, here's this woman holding nothing back, giving all that she had to express her love and devotion to Jesus, unreserved, wholehearted. The price that Judas would put on Jesus' head would be just 30 pieces of silver, money he'd take for himself. This woman is pouring out on Jesus her most precious possession. She's saying, in effect, you're worth everything, everything to me. I guess she's meaning to honor him, perhaps in her own way, trying to express her conviction that he's the Messiah, the anointed one. But if that's what she might have meant, Jesus sees a greater significance in what she does. That is just how he wants us to understand it. So look back to verse 7. He says, the poor you'll always have with you and you can help them any time you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand 
to prepare for my burial. When he says, the poor you'll always have with you, he's quoting there from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 15, a verse that actually encourages us to help the needy in, in our midst. So Jesus, in quoting that, he's certainly not saying we shouldn't care for the poor, help the poor. His point is, you can do that, you should do that at all times. But this was a particular time. You would not always have me, says Jesus. A hugely significant moment because he's about to die. And it was normal in those days to anoint a body, to prepare it for burial. Do you remember that first Easter Sunday morning? Women came to the tomb to do that very thing, to anoint him with, with, with various things, prepare him for burial. Um, the Sabbath had prevented them from doing it the day before. And as they got there, they found the tomb empty, for Jesus was risen. It was too late to anoint him then and unnecessary. Because Jesus says this woman had already done uh, what they would go to do. He'd prepared, they'd, she'd prepared his body for burial. That's a rather um, morbid idea, preparing someone for burial when they're still alive. Imagine an undertaker turning up one day at your house and says, can I just uh, measure you properly for the coffin? I want to make sure everything's ready. And uh, you'd think, just can't you wait a little bit longer? seems morbid, but Jesus says it's beautiful. It's beautiful because the extravagance, the lavishness of her anointing is testimony to the preciousness of his death. I think that's the point. It's not just that she's honoring him. More particularly, Jesus says, she's honoring him for his death. And that's why it so beautifully accords with the gospel, Jesus says. And wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, what she's done will be remembered. Because, as with the gospel, it honors Jesus for his death. Beauty is something all of us care about. All of us hunger for, deep down, long for beauty in our world that often has much that's ugly. And the world offers a very superficial idea of beauty. It's all about body shape or the clothes we wear. Whereas Jesus says this is what real beauty looks like. This is the kind of beauty that will enthrall us for all eternity in a new creation. This is the kind of beauty he wants to see in us today. A beauty we should strive for, long for. And it's a beauty that's marked by unreserved love for the Lord Jesus, especially and particularly for his death. That's what beauty is, a beauty that prizes his death above anything else. A beauty that says, you're worth everything to me. And not just because of who he is, but more especially because of what he's going to do on the cross for us. So can you say that? Do you want to be able to say that, to be marked by that kind of beauty? That's what Mark is wanting to stir in us. As he begins his passion narrative, it's as though Mark is saying to us, you may have heard this story many, many times before. Be very, very familiar, maybe so familiar, 
that the story of the death of Jesus has come to seem rather a small thing to you. But this is how we ought to approach it. This is how we ought to view it. The measure of how truly we have grasped the significance of what Mark is going to tell us is the degree to which this kind of beauty is seen in us. So that with all our heart, we want to sing with the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. That should be our approach to what Mark is wanting to show us. Well, that's the first dinner party. The second dinner party helps us understand why we should prize his death above everything else. And it's because of what it achieved. This dinner party happens not in Bethany, but in, in Jerusalem. And this time, Jesus isn't a guest. He's the host. And as he takes control of proceedings, he uses the meal to explain to the disciples the significance of what is about to happen in just a few hours' time. The heart of the section is verses 22 to 25, which we'll be familiar with from the, 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 the Holy Communion service and so on. But before we home in on, on those verses, just as Mark framed this, the story of the first dinner party to help us notice something beautiful that he had particularly wanted to draw our attention to, here again in this dinner party, he frames the heart of the passage to help us notice certain things, to explain certain things. So on either side, Jesus predicts his betrayal. Verse 27, um, when evening came, uh, yeah, 17 rather, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Passover was meant to be a lovely, happy meal, a meal with his disciples. And I guess when Jesus dropped that brick into the conversation, it would have rather ruined the atmosphere. Rather awkward. One of you is going to betray me. They suddenly, verse 19, they're saddened. One by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. And Jesus says, yes, one of them, one of the 12, one of those closest to him would betray him. Not that the rest of them are much better, because if you look on to verse 27, just after our passage, he's going to predict there that all of them would fall away. All would desert him. Peter would um, deny him three times. So again, Mark gives us a dark backdrop to see what he wants us to see. A backdrop of faithlessness and betrayal, like that jeweler's black cloth to show up all the more clearly an act of love and faithfulness. Not an act of the woman this time, but of Jesus himself. She had given her heirloom, pouring it out over Jesus' head. He's about to give something infinitely more precious than that. He's going to give his own life, he'll say. His blood is going to be poured out for them. Far, far more costly gift for far less deserving people. 
but his death would be an act of even more extravagant love. The other thing we might notice, the way Mark frames this little bit, is that on either side, there's a note of Scripture being fulfilled. Things aren't spinning out of control. Jesus is, is perfectly in control, it's made clear. And everything is happening according to plan. Scripture is being fulfilled. So verse 21, Jesus says, The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. And again, verse 27, he'll be quoting the Scriptures. And it suggests, as we'll see, that the Old Testament is the key to unlock the meaning of what is about to happen. Well, that's a bit of the frame. Let's home in on, on verses 22 to 25, which, as I say, familiar to us from the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, rather. But it's, it's striking, as Mark retells this, he doesn't include the phrase we might be familiar with, do this in remembrance of me. As if to make the point that in the first place, he's not trying to help us understand communion. He's wanting us to understand Jesus' death that's about to take place. That's his priority. And there's two things, I think, that he wants us to see. That his death is going to achieve a new redemption, and it's going to establish a new relationship. So first, the new redemption. You may well know that at Passover there was a set menu and a set script. Particular foods were eaten and particular words were said during the meal. All to help people remember what happened the first Passover when God had rescued, redeemed Israel out from being slaves in Egypt. But about halfway through this meal, Jesus changes the script. And as he does so, he changed the whole focus of the meal. So verse 22, we read, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, take it, this is my body. Lots of ink, even blood has been spilt over those words. But... Uh, I take it it's obvious. He's not saying literally the bread was his body any more than when in the course of a Passover meal the host might say, passing around some bread, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. It wasn't to mean literally this is a specially preserved bit of very stale now and rather moldy bread which we've kept for over a thousand years. It means it symbolizes that bread. Well, Jesus is saying um, that rather than looking back in a Passover meal and remembering how God had rescued them from Egypt through the death of a lamb, he's wanting to say something trumps that now. Something fulfills that now. Because he is about to give his body up to death and accomplish an even more wonderful Redemption. So he says, this is my body. That's the new significance he wants to point to. At the original Passover, you may remember, judgment hung over every home in the land of Egypt. God's destroying angel was going to pass through the country, and in every house there was to be a death. Terrible, terrible time. 
And yet God said, if a lamb was killed and the blood smeared on the doorposts, when the angel saw the blood, would know that, that a death had been died already and it would pass over that house. The lamb had died instead. God said he would accept that lamb as a substitute. And Jesus is saying now that all that, that Passover stuff was just a shadow of something more wonderful, a shadow of the real thing. From now on, it won't be a, a dead lamb you remember. I want you to remember my dead body, he's saying. I'm to be the substitute. My death is what will save you, rescue you, shield you from God's wrath. So take it, he says. Make this your own. Without it, you have nowhere to hide. We all stand condemned, helpless before God's wrath. But his death secures a new redemption. I guess many of us know that. But I guess I want to ask, in the light of the first dinner party, how much is that worth to you? When that woman poured perfume over Jesus, she was saying, well, Jesus says it points to the surpassing preciousness of his death. And we need to see it as precious because it saves us from God's wrath. There's nothing more precious than that. So a new redemption, and then secondly, a new relationship. His death doesn't simply save us from God's wrath. It saves us so that we might know his love is the point, know his friendship and grace. That's the significance of what Jesus said, having just passed round the cup. Verse 24, he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now those words actually hark back to another event in Israel's history. After the rescue of the Israelites from Egypt, the Passover, God then led them to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with them. He bound this people to himself in a special relationship. He said that he would be their God, they would be his people. And bulls were sacrificed, and Moses took the blood, and he sprinkled it over all the people. That blood was called the blood of the covenant. It was God's seal on this agreement. And to be sprinkled with the blood meant to be included in this relationship. Well, having passed round the cup of wine, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. It symbolizes my blood, my blood that's going to be poured out as a sacrifice uh, on the cross. A sacrifice that establishes a new covenant, a new relationship between God and his people. The Old Testament had looked forward to a new covenant that God would make, one in which sins would be fully and finally forgiven forever, one in which hearts would be changed at last, one in which we would know God personally, each one of us, know his love, know his favor, know his blessing. And he passed around the cup, speaking of his blood, 
says, that's what my death is going to make possible. A relationship with God that nothing can spoil, nothing can take away. And then verse 25, he says, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. At a Passover meal, I gather there were four cups that were passed around at different points in the meal, and it seems that Jesus said, verse 24, the commentators seem to say, just after the third cup had been passed round. And now he says there's not going to be a fourth cup yet. The meal ends, as it were, incomplete. We call this the last supper, but actually Jesus says it's not going to be the last. It's not finished. One day there will be another supper, a never-ending feast in the kingdom of God, in the new heaven and new earth. And there we'll be with God, enjoying his presence, enjoying his hospitality and love and friendship forever and ever. He's saying that is what my death is going to make possible. That relationship forever. That's why his blood is about to be poured out to secure this new, perfect, everlasting relationship with God. Well, that's why, Mark says, his death is so precious. That's why the woman who poured out that perfume was absolutely right. And that's why we should love him and honor him. Give everything for him. Because he has so loved us with such extravagance, holding nothing back. That's what we're worth to him. And that's why his death should mean everything to us. Let me pray. Father, our love, in contrast to that woman, seems so cold, cool, so small and measured. There's too little of that beauty in us. And we long, please, that you would make us more beautiful like her. And to that end, please help us, not least these coming weeks as we read on in Mark's gospel, please help us to see afresh the beauty of the Lord Jesus, to see the beauty of his death, the preciousness of his death, that we might, might indeed prize it above all else. Please change our hearts for his sake.